Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The Book of Psalms, Chapter 8, Verses 1-6, through English Standard Version For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The Book of Romans Chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, English Standard Version. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay in the studio today with Ken Connor, noted attorney, author, activist, and former chairman of the Family Research Council and the Center for a Just Society. Before we begin our interview, though, We'd like to take a few minutes to meditate on one of God's most important attributes, His holiness. We're going to do that by using a devotional extract from R.D. Fierro's book on prayer entitled Purposeful Prayers. This happens to be Day 3 from the 30-Day Devotional Study. As R.C. Sproul points out in his classic work, The Holiness of God, although the Bible talks about many different attributes of God, the Bible emphasizes only one attribute by triple repetition. In Isaiah 6-3 and Revelation 4-8, God is described as being holy, holy, holy. While we tend to think of holy as meaning sacred or worthy of reverence, the primary biblical meaning of the term is different or other. The nature of His being reflects God's holiness. 
God is unlike every other entity that has ever existed, because He alone is uncreated. As difficult as it may be to comprehend, God does not owe His existence to any other being or thing. He is not derived from anything or anyone else. God is transcendent. He created time and space and the universe, but He is not bound by any of them. He is other than His creation. God is also other in that He has no needs, not one. He depends on no other being or thing or anything at all. As mentioned earlier, sometimes you might hear a preacher or ministry leader say, God needs our praise and worship, or God needs the prayer of His people. While it is true that God wants those things, He is not any greater for having received them, nor any lesser without them. No one can add anything to God or take anything away from Him. God has no flaws, weaknesses, or deficiencies. He is perfect. He makes no mistakes. He knows and does everything perfectly. God is completely other from any type of error. God's holiness can be a source of terror or comfort to His creatures. The terror comes when we realize that we are not fit to approach God on our own merits. As Sproul has said, God is holy and we are not. But those who have put their trust in Christ should be comforted from knowing we don't have to approach God on our own. We have access to the Father through the Son. He is our mediator. Christ's meritorious work, His sinless life and sacrificial atoning death, and our faith in Him are the means through which we can approach a holy God. Those who come to God through Christ can stand confidently before a throne that would otherwise be a holy terror. Because God is holy and perfect, we need not fear that He will act arbitrarily or capriciously. Unlike the gods of pagan mythologies, the God of the Bible is not tempted, indeed cannot be tempted, by spite, malice, or any lesser motive. He is worthy of complete confidence and trust. God's holiness, His otherness, is our assurance that He cannot fall prey to temptations that were the downfall for Satan, the demons, and ultimately for Adam and his progeny. God's holiness is the surest of foundations for our prayer and our lives. Well, I think meditating on God's holiness sets the stage pretty well for today's discussion. By way of a slightly longer introduction of Ken, Listeners should know that Ken has practiced law for over 40 years and has been at the forefront of some of the most important issues confronting our nation and culture pretty much throughout that time. Florida's Governor Bush asked Ken to represent Terry Schiavo in her family's fight to keep Terry alive. Furthermore, as a former president of Florida Right to Life and two national organizations involved in major cultural issues, Ken has unique insights on the challenges facing Christians in America and in our day and time. Also, though he's too modest to tell anyone, Ken was good friends with some of the most important Christian leaders in the last half century, including Chuck Colson and R.C. Sproul, among others. Ken, thanks for being here today to share some of your unique insights. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be back in Tallahassee. Ken. 
You've been at the forefront of many of the social and cultural issues confronting Christianity in America for the last, well, several years? You were the first person I remember talking about the dangers posed by judicial activism. Do you still see that as a problem in America? Has it improved in the 30 years since you first began talking about it? Or has it gotten worse? I do see it uh, as a problem. What's encouraging, however, is in the intervening time since we've been talking about it, many others have seen it as a problem as well. First of all, let's define what judicial activism is. Judicial activism occurs when judges usurp responsibilities that don't rightly belong to them. In other words, rather than merely interpreting the law, judicial activism uh, is when judges make the law. In our United States Constitution, we have uh, expressed provisions that separate the various branches of government. The intention behind that was to make sure that people didn't get to abuse their authority. Our founders, recognizing that fallen man was inclined to abuse power, decided to disperse that power among three separate co-equal branches of government. Here in Florida, there's an explicit provision providing for the separation of powers, and that says very explicitly that no individual in one branch of government shall exercise powers appertaining to any other branch of government. And as was pointed out by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, the judiciary was intended to be the weakest of the branches of government. It was to be a repository of our freedoms. But they pointed out in the Federalist Papers that when judges usurp authority that doesn't belong to them and begin to exercise authority belonging to one of the other branches, that by its very definition becomes judicial despotism. And we've seen examples of that where judges make law. Roe versus Wade was the classic example. The TW case in Florida where judges ruled that minor children had a right to abortion, even though no such uh, provision was provided for by law or in the Constitution, and without having uh, their parents' authority or consent. The danger of judicial activism is that one branch becomes more powerful than the other branches. Well, fortunately for us, recent presidents have appreciated the danger associated with that, President Trump is well known for trying to ensure that uh, strict constructionists are on the court and that they are judges who simply interpret the law rather than make the law. In Florida, Governor DeSantos has had the same philosophy. He wants to make sure that judges uh, stick to judging and not uh, legislating, and most recently appointed three justices to the Florida Supreme Court who are judicial conservatives. I'm not saying they're necessarily political conservatives. But they have a conservative view of their role on the court. I think that's a very healthy attitude because what it does is help to ensure that a proper balance is brought back between the three co-equal branches of government. You were also one of the first people to talk about the fact that the life issues included more issues than just abortion. Could you expand a little bit on what you meant and where you see those issues standing today? I can tell you that I've not always been pro-life. I was really deeply convicted years ago when I read a book and saw a film series by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop called Whatever Happened in the Human Race. And in that book, Dr. Koop made the case scientifically for the humanity of the unborn child. Dr. Schaeffer, a theologian, 
maintained uh, essentially that if we are really dealing with people in the womb, then as Christians, we have an obligation to contend for their protection and preservation. But they also pointed out that this disposable man ethic that gave rise to Roe versus Wade also threatens other vulnerable people groups. When uh, your membership in the human family is determined by whether you're wanted or not, then that impacts not only vulnerable unborn children, but it impacts the vulnerable handicapped who cost more to maintain than they produce. It impacts the elderly who suffer from dementia or disability and who don't score well using quality of life calculus. And so this disposable man ethic that says you're not a member of the human family unless you're wanted really puts at risk others who, because of their disability or their disfigurement or their mental incapacity, or frankly, just because of their cost, are not wanted by others. And so I've seen in my practice everything that Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Coop said come true. The handicapped have been increasingly put at risk. Terry Schiavo here in Florida is a great example of that. Terry Schiavo, a young woman who had suffered a severe brain injury, but who was able to live just by being provided with uh, food and fluids, uh, was deemed to be unwanted. And because uh, she was unwanted, basically, uh, she was not deemed uh, to be a person any longer. And effectively, an activist uh, Supreme Court authorized her... uh, extermination by uh, dehydration and starvation. Every day in the nursing homes all over this country, Florida included, we see just an epidemic of abuse and neglect that really arises out of this disposable man ethic that says there's a sliding scale of dignity, and once you become compromised in a profound way, somehow your net worth is diminished. One of the reasons R.D. founded Crystal Sea Books was to be part of reclaiming the arts and entertainment parts of our culture for the cause of Christ. He admired the influence that great Christian fiction writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had on a broader culture through their brilliant fiction and allegory. What do you think about that as a vision? Do you share R.D.'s concerns? I do indeed. One, one of the things that I've learned as a trial lawyer And of course, I learned uh, from my mother, who used to read me stories uh, growing up, is that we communicate essential truths through stories. And the more interesting the story, the more impact uh, the lesson learned often has. And I have really appreciated uh, the work of many of the Christian allegorical writers, and I think you're following in a tremendous tradition, most recently uh, because of your own influence through your own writings. I was convicted that I needed to go back and read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. By the time I finished that book, I was on my knees, humbled at the lessons I had learned uh, in that book. And uh, I'm just so pleased that you're following in that tradition, helping people understand the essential truths about the nature of man and the nature of God. And you've helped communicate those uh, by weaving just a set of fascinating stories that capture people's attention and that are really exposed to truths that they might not find because they might not be otherwise inclined to read the scriptures or a devotional book or something else. So I think it's a great idea and much needed in our age. 
What do you think are some of the most important discussions going on within the broader culture as they affect the church? There are probably three areas uh, that I think affect the church, and in turn, the church has the opportunity to impact. There are issues that involve the sanctity and dignity of life, the sanctity and dignity of marriage, and uh, our need to care for and uh, tend to the poor. You know, in the scriptures, our Lord is described as the author of life. And the scriptures tell us that we are created in God's image. And because we are, we have inherent worth, value, and dignity, so much so that our Lord himself sacrificed his son that we would have eternal life. As the scripture says, we've been redeemed not with silver and gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb spotless and unblemished, uh, the blood of Christ. And so human beings have intrinsic value because we've been made in the image of God. That's a concept that society has lost sight of. Among the dominant media elites, they even deny the existence of God. Well, the effect of that, of course, is to depreciate a man and to emote him from the status of bearer of God's image to simply the best of the beasts. And uh, given that depreciation, how we view our fellow man determines how we treat him. And uh, if we don't accord great worth, value, and dignity, we're not inclined to treat our fellow human beings very well. On the whole issue of marriage, of course, we're embroiled in this whole controversy about homosexual marriage. The whole notion of marriage is one that was inspired by God, and it's emblematic, the scripture tells us, of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a sacred and a holy institution, and it's uh, for the purpose, among other things, of fostering the perpetuation of the human race, as well as providing help to one another to lift one another up and help each other get through the difficult times of life. And then uh, the third issue I think that we really need to be aware of and take into account is this whole issue about what is, what is our obligation to the poor and the infirm and the needy? Are we our brother's keeper or not? We've already talked about how vulnerable groups are at risk because of this depreciated value of the human life. And the scripture has a lot to say about this, not the least of which is to be found in Matthew 25, where Jesus told uh, his followers, he says, uh, talking about uh, visiting him when he was sick or in prison and uh, meeting his needs, he says, to the extent you've done it to these, the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So we see in the scripture that Jesus really identifies in an extricable, close way with the poor and needy. And I think Christians need to recognize that we have an obligation to the poor and needy. And really, I think the big controversy today is how do we best go about meeting that obligation? Do we do it through government? Do we do it through private charities? Do we do it through the church? Well, there are a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but one thing is for sure, We have an ongoing and continuous uh, obligation to care for those who need our help. You were asked to represent Terry Schiavo. Could you tell us about that? What were the issues involved? And what did you learn from the experience? I think people in Florida are undoubtedly very familiar with that case. Terry Schiavo was a young woman who collapsed under very strange and uh, not completely known circumstances and who suffered from a severe uh, disability of the brain as a consequence of that. As a result of her handicap, 
she was in need of a feeding and fluids that were provided through a tube. And the issue that arose in that case was whether or not her separated husband and uh, her husband from whom he, she was estranged and with whom he had had a relationship, finding comfort in the arms of uh, people other than his wife, whether or not he was going to be permitted to authorize the withdrawal of food and fluids, the effect of which meant that Terry was going to die of dehydration and starvation. You may recall that the Florida legislature passed a law that gave uh, Governor Bush one-time authority to intervene on Terry's behalf and make a decision about whether or not food and fluids was going to be continued, and that provoked a whole controversy. There were many who advocated that because of Terry's infirmity, that hers was not a life worth living, and it didn't warrant uh, being sustained. And then on the flip side, there were those like Governor Bush and people like myself who felt that, you know, just because uh, Terry suffered from these infirmities did not mean that she was somehow compromised in her her humanity or that, that she didn't deserve to be provided for by others. At the end of the day, uh, what we saw was the courts basically authorized uh, her husband, who had had a, at one time a direct financial interest in her estate, to withdraw feeding and fluids. And over the course of about 13 days, Terry finally succumbed to, to dehydration and starvation. I guess the thing that I learned most from that experience is that every human life matters. Every human life counts. And that unless people of goodwill and uh, who have a spirit of charity are willing to intervene on behalf of those people, that they are very much at risk by forces who would emasculate their human dignity and feel that they could be disposed of on the ash heap of history. At one point, you decided to run for governor of Florida. Tell us something about that. Why did you decide to run? How did the race affect your life and family? And would you recommend seeking public office to other Christians? Well, first of all, I certainly would recommend other Christians to seek public office. I think it's important for Christians to be engaged in every level of the culture. You're engaged right now in the fields of art and literature. You've been engaged in the past in uh, the field of government. And, uh, you know, the truism that all it takes uh, for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing is absolutely true. Nature abhors a vacuum. I believe that the values that Christians uh, bring to the table that emanate from our Judeo-Christian tradition accord uh, the greatest freedom and the greatest protections for all members of a pluralistic society. And if we aren't in the arena advancing those values, someone else will be in the arena advancing a different set of values. And many times those values are inimical to those that flow out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Many times uh, people who don't subscribe to that tradition look at life through a utilitarian lens. And they weigh a person's uh, net worth based on things like quality of life calculus or functional capacity studies. And again, people who suffer from disability or infirmity or dementia or whatever, they become at risk. And so we need people who are willing to stand in the gap, stand up on behalf of the weak, and uh, make sure that their lives and their dignity are respected and protected by government. 
It was a wonderful experience. Obviously, I did not win, but I was greatly enriched by that experience, and my whole family was to see people who are willing to just knock themselves out for you, who believe in uh, what you stand for, make the kinds of sacrifices that they did on our behalf was uh, very gratifying and also very humbling. It was, it was just a great experience. You have said that it was reading the works of Francis Schaeffer that it animated you to become involved in public life and policy. What was it that you read, and how did that influence you? I mentioned that I was profoundly impacted by a book and film series that Dr. Schaefer produced called Whatever Happened in the Human Race. He also produced a book and film series called How Shall We Then Live, which was all about culture and Christianity and uh, how ideas have consequences and lead to uh, different forms of government, different means of viewing our fellow man. How we view God invariably winds up uh, how we view our fellow man, and how we view him determines how we treat him. And Dr. Schaefer really drove those points home in a very compelling way. R.C. Sproul is a theologian uh, who had a huge impact on me. He passed away recently, but he's written just any number of books, one of which uh, was The Holiness of God, which just a fair reading of that book, if it doesn't drive you to your knees, I don't know uh, what will. But he also, along with Dr. Schaefer and in the tradition of Dr. Schaefer, talked about the importance of Christians keeping their minds engaged and understanding that ideas have consequences. And he helps you think through in a very systematic way what the consequences of some of the good ideas are and what some of the bad ideas are. Chuck Colson, I think, was one of the great modern apologists of our day. Brilliant guy whom, as you know, uh, served in the Nixon administration, went to prison and had a dramatic and remarkable conversion experience, and then devoted his life thereafter to prison reform and helping people uh, try to think in a rigorous and systematic way about their faith and the implications of their faith for the way in which uh, they live their lives. Ravi Zacharias is a tremendous guy, I think, who is a very rigorous and systematic thinker who has been exposed to a variety of religions and who does a great job in comparing and contrasting where the worldviews that emanate from those religions wind up taking culture. So those, I would say, are probably some of the most uh, influential uh, people on my life in terms of their uh, literary works. Ken, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Your insights are very important. But before we leave today, we'd like to close with a prayer. For our closing prayer, how about if we pray that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of the God of the Bible, who is our one sure anchor to truth. A prayer for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us, and we would be swept into the depths by tides of trouble. With you, we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us 
people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name that we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.